If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where the preaching is going to be going over the next few weeks. Uh, in case you're visiting, you should know that the typical format of preaching that we employ here at the church is called exegetical preaching. And what that simply means is that we look at the Scripture, we take a text, and we make sure that the main point of that text is the main point of our sermon. Uh, that's why we usually start at the beginning of a book and we make our way from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end of the book, not worrying about how long it takes us because it's not about getting through the book, it's about the book getting through to us. So we begin making our way through a book and we travel all the way through it. Just recently we finished the book of Acts and then we took some time to be in Psalm chapter 139 for three sermons and now we've kind of come to a point of the summer where we're going to do a couple of different things before jumping into our next long exegetical series. Because exegetical preaching should be the main diet of, a, diet of a church. However, there are occasions when it can be really helpful and appropriate and healthy to preach systematic sermons. So that's what we're going to be doing, where we're going to be looking over a wide swath of the Scriptures and see what they say about a particular matter of doctrine. We're particularly going to be focusing in on the systematic focus of church discipline. We're not going to be analyzing every aspect of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. There's a whole lot there, but we certainly are going to be drawing out many principles of church discipline from these verses. So as I start reading in chapter 5 verse 1, I would encourage you, please follow along in your own copies of Scripture. This is the most important thing you're going to hear all day. This is unmitigated truth. This is God's holy and inspired word, the arbiter in all disputes, and it is the message of grace to God's people. So please follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. 
Father God, we just ask that as we come before you, you would allow us to understand this message, that we would truly grasp the richness and the power of what you are teaching us throughout these words. And we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to have a compassionate heart towards those who are in sin, and that we would have a humble heart to be receptive whenever we are rebuked. And Lord, I just ask that in all of these things, you would cause our church to be radically transformed so that we might be better equipped to care together for your flock. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Several years ago, a fellow elder of mine was preaching about a particular sin issue that is common amongst churches. And afterwards, after he finished preaching, somebody approached him and was angry with him and said, I know exactly who you're talking about. Well, funnily enough, uh, the elder who was preaching that day had no direct knowledge of the fact that there was indeed a massive hidden sin, this particular type of sin that was going on in the church, and he had no idea. In the providence of God, he preached on the issue, and it was so poignant that that particular member could not believe, could not trust and believe that it wasn't prearranged. Or to be more accurate, I will tell you it was prearranged by God, but without the elder's knowledge. Some of you might be wondering, as we are now entering into a sermon, actually, to be clear, two sermons today and next Sunday, about church discipline, you might be wondering, why are we hearing about this right now? Is there something that we should know about? And the answer is no. Not to my knowledge, there is nothing right now, which is why this is the perfect time for us to consider church discipline. The best time to learn about any aspect of no, in knowledge of doctrine or theology is before you are required to put it into practice. You need the training before the mission arrives. This study of church discipline will hopefully help you personally identify ways that you can be a better church member and the ways that you can help grow in holiness and in the power of the gospel. So we're going to start this week by considering the what and the why of church discipline and that means we're going to look at its nature and its purpose. And then next week, we're going to consider the how and the who and the when of church discipline. So let's begin today by defining what is church discipline. My favorite technical definition comes from Jonathan Lehman. He simply says, church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of the congregation and its members. That's very simple, and that's what church discipline is. But what does that even mean? And what does it look like? And where do we find biblical warrant for that? Well, in order to flesh it out a bit, we're going to answer the question, what is it, by considering five things that, the church, that church discipline is. And then we're going to look at eight reasons why we do it here at LBC. So first, what is church discipline? First of all, church discipline is biblical. I once had a conversation with a church member who was very unhappy because I had read a portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the text that we just read. I read a couple of verses from it, and I did so because we were in the midst of a church discipline situation that had arisen to a public level, and so I had to read that text in one of our business meetings, and this member confronted me and said they could not think of anything more evil. They couldn't think of anything more evil than to say that we would hand someone over to Satan. And I responded by saying, you do know I was literally just reading the Bible, right? I was just reading what it says. They did not understand that. I think they still didn't understand it even after our conversation. But church discipline is not a man-made process. It's not something that's been fabricated by leaders in order to remove people from their church. It is a practice that was instituted by God. It was from Him, and it's found in many places in our Bibles. 
Although we're particularly going to be aiming our attention at 1 Corinthians 5 today, because really it's one of the more extended and probably the most egregious example of church discipline in the Bible, although we're focusing our attention there, we see it prescribed or described in many places in the New Testament, including Matthew, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, in Titus, Hebrews, and 1 and 2 Peter, and 1, 2, and 3 John all speak about church discipline in various ways. This is not a fringe issue. According to the Scripture, it is central to the life of the church. The second thing we need to know about what church discipline is, is that it is not punishment. It is discipline. God's heart towards us is that he loves us too much to allow us to continue wallowing in our sin. Hebrews 12, chapter 12, 5 through 7 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Discipline is a way for God to care for us as his children. Now, clearly, when he is talking in Hebrews 12, he is talking about all of the forms of discipline that God employs. There are many of those, and oftentimes those are personal and circumstantial or internal and emotional, but that also includes the discipline of the church, as noted by the fact that the author of Hebrews himself is enacting a correcting rebuke letter to those people. Discipline is always a way for God to care for his children even in this form of discipline that we find in the church. God has providentially brought together our congregation in order to walk faithfully towards Christ. This is not punishment. Punishment is punitive. It is a display of wrath. It is not intended to bring about redemption or reconciliation or restoration. That's why I don't ever tell people that I punish my children. I do not ever punish them. I discipline them because I love them and I care for them and I want them to walk in the way of truth. Hebrews 12 makes this same comparison. He says, besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now, we should all love being within the loving arms of God's corrective care. We should delight in the fact that God does not just let us do whatever we want without any kind of response. As Chris read so well earlier from Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, the scripture teaches us that whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. You do not want God to classify you in a category of stupid. This is his rendering of who you are. If you hate discipline, we must love the fact that God has set up boundaries for us and ways to keep us within those boundaries in love. Every aspect of the discipline that the Lord has designed for the church is good for his people. And he wants us, as it says here in Hebrews 12, to share in his holiness. That's what church discipline is about. It's about keeping us within the holiness that God wants us to live within. Church discipline, therefore, is always to be done in a compassionate manner. We're not talking about abstract concepts here. 
We're talking about real people. If you look around you, we're talking about us. We are talking about you and me. We are talking about the grace of God being overlapping into sinful lives of people like us. Church discipline is always done with the goal of repentance and reconciliation and restoration. It is to be done in love. We'll look at the nuts and bolts of that next week. But for now, let's shift forward to the third thing. We must know that church discipline is. Church discipline is a process. We'll see a lot of that next week as how it practically applies here. But we'll see a little piece of that this morning by considering the fact that in Matthew 18, Jesus lays out the process of church discipline <clears throat> in four steps. The first two are informal, and then starting at chapter, uh, part three, it becomes formal, and the church gets involved. So step one is go to that person directly. If you see sin in the person, you see something, you say something. Number two, you bring a friend with you preferably somebody who's more spiritually mature and scripturally aware than you are. And third, you become formal with it. You take it to the church. And the last step of, along the line is excommunication. You have nothing to do with them. You set them outside of the fellowship of the congregation. We're going to learn much more about that process and how it plays out specifically at LBC next week. But for today, I just want you to know this is not instantaneous. It is procedural. But you might ask, well, that doesn't look like what happened in 1 Corinthians 5. What about that guy? Paul seems to have skipped those first three steps and jumped right to number four and says, remove him, purge him out of the church. Why does he do that? Why does he skip right to excommunication? Well, the answer for that is really simple. There was no reason to tell it to the church because the church already knew. Paul condemns them for knowing about it and refusing to do anything about it. Look at verse 2 again, where the Lord, and see how the Lord views their failure to discipline him. He says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Their lack of discipline was called out by God to be a form of arrogance. This indicates that they already knew. So the final step was all that was left. Most of the time, there is a period in which the person is confronted with their sin on multiple occasions by multiple believers before escalating it to the level of being removed from the church. It's, it is a process. It is not immediate. Number four, church discipline is congregational. Did you notice that it was not just the elders of the church that Paul refers to as being arrogant here? He's talking to the whole congregation. It implicates the entire church as complicit in the arrogance of passivity. Look again at verses 4 and 5 where it says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What does he mean, you are to deliver that man to Satan? He's speaking with the plural to the whole church. You all are to hand this man over to Satan. In 2 Corinthians 2, we learn about a church discipline situation that worked out. It actually res results in repentance. And Paul instructs them there about how that person is to be restored. The main thing that you need to notice here is that it could be the same guy in 1 Corinthians 5, but whether it is or isn't, what you need to see here is that it is a congregational vote that caused him to be removed in the first place. 2 Corinthians 2, 6. For by such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. Did you catch that? 
It was the majority of the church that determined to discipline this man in the first place. In other words, there must have been some congregational tally to determine the fact that there was a majority of people within the church who declared that this person must be removed. It is not merely a top-down authoritarian position, just like we vote members in, we are all responsible in a sad situation like this to also vote people out in church discipline. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The last thing we want to consider in this first half of our sermon is to consider that church discipline is local. Unlike the early church, there are no apostles today. Like I always tell you, if anyone introduces themselves as an apostle, you either try to evangelize them as a lost person or you should run away as fast as you can. Paul had the unique authority as an apostle to command the church to excommunicate a man from their midst. He could tell them, I am already telling you that I have done this in my spirit and my spirit is present with you. Kick him out. He can do that because he's an apostle. But there is nobody alive today that has that kind of authority within our church except the members of our church. Likewise, you are not able to enact formal church discipline on anyone who is not a member of this church. And as part of a local church, we have covenanted together in order to strive towards holiness as a body. We have subjected ourselves to the authority of one another. By becoming a member of one another, 1 Corinthians 12, we have declared, I am going to allow and even welcome your oversight into my life, and you are going to welcome my oversight into yours. We can love and encourage and even admonish people in other congregations, but ultimately we have no authority over them. Also, by local, I mean that it is the church. It's our responsibility to judge within this congregation, not the community around us. Look, it, it should not surprise you that the world acts like the world. It should not surprise us that people who don't know Jesus Christ act like they don't know Jesus Christ. It's not surprising when sinners sin. What we need to understand is that we are not called to be the policemen of the world. We are to oversee the local church. The church is called to live out holiness because we have been changed by the grace of God. And although still sinners, we are being sanctified by him. Paul explains this starting in our text today, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And you are going to see that there seems to be some kind of confusion within the church because he clarifies and says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. In other words, that stuff is everywhere. If you're going to try to escape it, you need to be in a convent or in a monastery somewhere because you can't escape it. Also, the convent monastery thing has never worked out well for anyone. So even that doesn't work because the sin goes in with you. And now he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So with those things in mind, now that we see that this is what church discipline is, let's consider why we are called to carry it out. Here's eight reasons why. First, because it's commanded. Whenever you come to the scripture and you ask, why are we supposed to do something? If it tells you to do it, that's one of the main reasons why you should do it. It's very simple. 
Jesus only used the word for church three times in the gospel, that word ecclesia. The first was in Matthew 16. We'll look at that a little bit later. But the second and third time that he used it are together in Matthew 18 when he is speaking about church discipline, to tell it to the church. The Lord has not left us with any wiggle room here. We cannot simply reject commands like Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's no wiggle room here for us. It is a command. Titus 3.10 adds, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It is a command. 1 Corinthians 5.11 from our text today. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of these things. Not even to eat with such a one. These commands leave us with no room for argument. We must carry out church discipline because God requires it of all true churches. However, it is important to highlight the fact that all of God's commands are good for you. He is telling us this because it is actually good for his church. The parent that makes their kid eat vegetables is doing it because it isn't healthy to subsist but popsicles and ketchup. If that's all they eat, which is all they want to eat, then they're not going to live very long. And so the parent who says, eat your broccoli, is doing so not because they hate their child, but because they love their child. And they encourage them to consume things that will benefit them. I hope as we make our way through the rest of this list, you see that it is a great benefit to the people of God to enact loving and compassionate church discipline within the church. The second reason why we do it is that it keeps the church alive. Well, in order to explain this, let me explain how does a church die? From an earthly perspective, there's a million possible reasons. Everyone gets old and literally dies, or maybe they just run out of money and have to close their doors, or maybe it's that they turn away from the proper teaching of the word and they start teaching heresy. There's a lot of different things that we could look at it from an earthly perspective and say, yes, that's why a church dies. But in reality, from a spiritual heavenly perspective, there's only ever one reason why a church dies. And in order to explain this, let me remind you of the very first instance that the Lord Jesus himself used the word church. He said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and speaking of Peter, he says Pietra, him, and on this rock, Pedras, I will build my church, speaking of himself, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who will build his church? Jesus will build it. Now, of course, that is speaking of the universal church, but in order to make that promise, he must also be speaking about building the church in local expressions. That is not mere speculation. We see that clearly in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This is the portion of Revelation where Jesus gives letters to John, seven of them, to deliver to seven churches in Asia Minor. In those letters, he was, John was told that Jesus had particular corrections for six of those seven churches. And if the people there were not responsive to the commands, there were consequences that Jesus promises will come. The church of Pergamum, for example, was permissive of sexual sin within the church. And Jesus says of them in Revelation 2.16, therefore repent. He's speaking to a church, a Christian community, people that are true saints of God. And he says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is a terrifying thing. This is Jesus, the king of the universe, the almighty God, saying, I will come in war against them. But do you know what I find just as terrifying as that, if not more? 
is what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, the first church of the letters of these seven churches. It's the church that lost their first love. He says to them, quote, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that line, remove your lampstand, is the one I want you to zone in on. Thankfully, we're not left to guess what that is. There's a lot of imagery in Revelation. There's a lot of mysterious illustrations and metaphors. And sometimes we literally have no idea what they mean. We have to work hard to try to understand them. Here, he doesn't make us guess. He doesn't make us speculate. He just tells us at the end of chapter one that these lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands represent the church. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove the lampstand, meaning I'm going to remove the church. If you study that section, that first several verses of chapter two, you will see that he is talking about the fact he is going to remove the church, but not the ultimate gathering of those people. In other words, there are places where people gather every single Sunday that have the word church on the building and Jesus is not there. The church isn't real. It is external. It is not genuine. It is a false church. That lampstand has been removed. The worst thing that could happen to this church is if Jesus were to come and remove the lampstand. And we all still gather. We all still celebrate. But this isn't a place where there is true and genuine salvation any longer. That would be a terrible thing. A church dies when Jesus removes the lampstand. Church discipline keeps a church alive because it keeps the church properly oriented toward Jesus and keeps us from wandering astray. The third reason why church discipline is implemented is because it keeps sin from spreading. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 5, good job, well done, mission accomplished. Look again at verse 6. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven, or yeast, is just a picture of sin throughout the Bible. What does yeast do to a lump of dough? A couple of years ago, I had COVID. And for the first couple of days, I was really bad. I was like not moving in bed. I felt like I was dying. And then I wasn't allowed to leave. Like I'd get calls from Nassau County and emails saying that if we find out that you left your house, we'll find you $10,000 or whatever. And so I was like, man, I don't have $10,000, so I'm going to hang out in my house. And I was like, what do I even do? Like, I'm so, like, I'm hanging out with my kids. I'm having fun. But I was like, I got to do something. So I decided to start making bread. I wasn't the most successful baker in the world, but I was able to make several loaves that were edible. And in making those loaves of bread, I was shocked to discover just how much transformation occurs in a lump of dough when you add yeast. You take two lumps, you put them both on the counter. One of them has yeast and the other one doesn't. You come back and that first one that you you added yeast to it, it like inflates three or four times its natural size. It bloats, it festers. It becomes something completely mutant to what it previously was with just like a tiny little bit of like almost salt-sized specks. You throw it in there, you can't even see it. When you put them on the counter together, they look the same, but they are not the same. One of them has yeast and the other one does not. When you have a church that has sin, it does something traumatic to that church. It damages that church. It looks small and at first it goes unnoticed, but then as time moves on, it warps everything. That little bit of yeast infects and affects every single part of the dough. You need to know that your sin is never truly private. It is never simply personal. It necessarily affects your entire church. It leavens the entire lump. 
It appears that part of the reason Paul considered the inaction of the Corinthians to be arrogant was that they felt as though the sin of this wicked man had somehow nothing to do with them. That it wasn't affecting them. That it had no bearing on them. But God doesn't see it like that. There was sin in the camp and it was affecting them all. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. When sin is dealt with through the process of church discipline, it causes all of us in the church to be reminded of the deceitfulness of sin and the ease with which we can let our guard down. The first time we hear anything about any form of church discipline, it's not this kind in the Bible. What I would consider the very first church discipline situation in the scripture is actually one carried out by God himself. It's when Ananias and Sapphira lied. And what happened? They were called out on their sin. They did not confess their sin. And God himself struck them dead. Now, what was the result of that? It tells us in Acts chapter 5 that fear came about the whole church and they worshiped. That's a really powerful statement. Because I think if I was living in that day, I would have been much more careful about not lying after I saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. After the very first church cemetery was produced right outside of our back door, I don't think that I would be very quick to tell a white lie. But for them, in that day, it produced fear. Similarly, when church discipline is applied to an unrepentant member of the church, it should cause all of us to examine ourselves carefully and thoroughly. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Church discipline is designed to keep sin from spreading. Fourthly, church discipline is propelled by the gospel. Did you catch that incredibly powerful line in verse 7? Look what it says there. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the most explicit reference to Christ Jesus being our Passover lamb in the entire Bible. And it's given in the context of church discipline. He was the lamb that was given in order to atone for our sins, to cover our sins, to pay for our sins. So let me be incredibly clear. What Paul is not saying, what Jesus is not saying in Matthew 18, what I am not saying is we must make sure all of us are sinless, perfect people because we are not sinless, perfect people. What we must be doing is acting as though we are redeemed people. Perhaps you're with us today and you don't know what I mean when I use that word gospel. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about when I speak of this Passover lamb. Let me tell you the gospel. It is that we, every one of us, is a sinner. You are a sinner and I am a sinner. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have dishonored him. We have disobeyed him. We have rebelled against him. We have spit in his face. We have declared, I will not have that man to rule over me. We have made ourselves God in our own eyes. We have no fear of God before our eyes. Those are ways the scripture describes all of us. And yet, even when we were yet sinners, in love, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and sinless life so that he might be pure and blameless on our behalf. And then he died at the cross so that he might give his pure, righteous record to wretched sinners like you and me. We who have no right to enter heaven are given free access to God's presence because the Son of God says, you are mine and you can have my righteousness. That purity, that perfect spotless lamb, 
That lamb was slain and his blood covers the sin of his people. That's what is being referenced here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We are saved by grace and that Jesus who died rose again showing that God the Father accepted the payment for our sins and he rules today to be your savior. If you are not a Christian, thank you for joining us today. I'm thankful that the Lord brought you here. I want you to know Jesus Christ, your king and your savior. Whether you know that he is the Lord of the universe or not, he is. And today, if you trust in him, he will forgive you everything you owe. By God's grace, we can all be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That is what Paul is referencing here. This incredibly powerful line about the gospel is really significant, but listen carefully, believer in the room. The gospel is not just what gets you in the door. It's not just the power of God unto, of salvation, un, uh, power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It is more than that. It is that, yes, but it is more than that. It is also of first importance for your everyday life. It is the gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to propel any change in your life. It is the motivation for all sanctification. So then, how does that gospel propel church discipline? Well, in order to explain it simply, just look at those words, as you really are unleavened. That is such a beautiful statement. Let me explain who is Paul talking to? The church. The congregation is a redeemed people. We have become unleavened by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. We have become a people whose sin has been removed because it was placed upon him. We are to consider ourselves people who have had our sin, our leaven, taken away. But how? How did that happen? As the next sentence says, for or because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It was through his death that we ourselves have become unleavened. So our identity as a congregation is to be a people that is purified by the blood of Jesus. So in light of that, what are we to do? He tells us, remove the old leaven. In some sense, I think he is talking about that leaven inside of each one of us, that we are to expel all of those actions and thoughts and deeds that are evil and sinful, old ways, old patterns of living. But it also means that there will be times when people profess to be part of the church and they will possibly even fool themselves. They will fool the congregation. They will fool the elders. They will say the right words in the membership process. They will be voted in as a member. But over time, their actions will display they are not actually unleavened. Rather, they are going to display with their lives that they have not actually been transformed. And that is when we are to do what Paul tells us in the last line of the chapter, purge the evil person from among you. Or as he says in verse 7, to remove the, unleaven, or the leaven from the lump. That old leaven must go. The fifth reason that we uh, perform church discipline is because church discipline protects us from wolves. I'm not going to say a lot on this point this week, but it is clear in the New Testament that there will be those who will come into the flock as wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to blend in for a time, and then they're going to start to eat the other sheep. They're going to devour them. And when the Scripture speaks about people like this, it is overwhelmingly done so in regards to false teachers, People with bad doctrine, bad theology that come in and skew and pervert the message of the gospel. We read about a specific couple of people in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul is writing to Timothy about these two men who walked away from their calling to teach and preach the gospel, and it resulted in their excommunication. It says, by rejecting this, this...
to be gospel. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In this case, God used excommunication of these men who had shipwrecked their faith in order to protect the flock of God from them. Paul had already warned the elders in Ephesus of this very danger. Now remember, Timothy, when Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy, he is in Ephesus. Now he writes in Acts 20, 28 through 30, warning that this was going to come. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's the gospel. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Church discipline protects us from the surprising and shocking and saddening reality that some people who appear initially to be Christians don't actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church discipline protects the church from wolves. The sixth thing we need to see here is that church discipline glorifies Christ. I'm going to give you eight reasons total why we do church discipline. This is the number one. If I were to give you one reason, this is the one reason why we do church discipline. It's the most important of all that I will share with you today. You see, the church is a representative of Christ on earth. We are his ambassadors. We display him to the world. We are the bride of Christ. And as such, whatever we do, whatever we say, however we act, we are telling the world something about Jesus. And when we allow sin to proliferate unchecked in our midst, we are basically telling the world that Jesus does not really care about our sin. We're dragging his name through the mud. When we allow the church to wallow in our muck of sin, we destroy not only our reputation, but his reputation in the eyes of the world. You don't believe me? How many times have you tried to talk to an unbelieving person about the gospel and their immediate response is about the hypocrisy that they have seen in those who bear the name of Jesus Christ? I think that is why Paul says to them in verse 2 that they should be mourning. Ought you not to mourn? Why mourn? We should be mourning for the fact that we are dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. He just told them that this is a sin not even permitted among the Gentiles. And he says, you should be mourning the fact that your reputation as a church is a place that is even more condoning of sin than the world is. In order to best illustrate this from the word, I want to show you an extended passage from Ezekiel. Now, In order to catch this argument, you're going to need to stick with me here. We're going to have the words on the screen, but I want you to pay close attention because this is significant. This is important. I want to preview this by telling you what is going on in the sense that God is telling Ezekiel and telling the people through Ezekiel about the coming new covenant. He is telling him promises that are going to be enacted within the new covenant. And he is specifically focusing on the fact that Israel has failed to keep the old covenant and giving them reasons why a new covenant is necessary. So follow along here on the screen, Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 20. It says, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, speaking of Israel, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. In other words, they were removed because they disobeyed. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. They did not make the name of God glorious in the eyes of the people, 
They were destroying the reputation of God by living in sin amongst the people. Notice so far what God has been saying is that he is very serious about his reputation. He is zealous for his own glory. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, as we move forward, I want you to understand he's not speaking specifically of those individuals. He's actually speaking about the new covenant church of God. And we know that because of the way the new covenant books of the Bible reference this specific passage and say that it is about the local church. We'll see one of those in a minute. What I want you to notice here is that so far he is saying that I am going to vindicate my reputation through the people that I do this to. Verse 24, I will take you from among the nations and will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land and will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Where do we see that in the New Testament? We see that in John 13. Jesus says that exact same thing to his disciples when he washes their feet. And from your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey obey my rules. This is a description of the new covenant work that God does in the hearts of his people, the church. And we know this because Hebrews 10 quotes some of these very verses and tells us that that is what God is speaking about. There is a ton of powerful truth here, but for now, just notice that God's motive for bringing about the new covenant was that his name might be glorified in all the earth. And the way in which he is going to get there is by redeeming a people, giving them new hearts, and causing them to walk in his statutes and carefully obey his rules. That's exactly what he says. My name will be vindicated by the way that you live, church. That's what God says. Brothers and sisters, the main reason we do church discipline is because Jesus is worthy to have his name lifted high in our community, both inside of this church and outside of it. Not that we'll be perfect, because we certainly will not, but that we will be a repentant people, that we will be a humble people, that we will be a teachable people, that we will be a reforming people, that we will be a people who have seen the light of grace that we have been shown, that we who have been forgiven much will love much. And if we love him, we will obey him. We do church discipline because it glorifies Jesus Christ. Number seven, we do church discipline because it is good for those who are caught in sin. Now, this point is going to be hammered far more next week so very simply today, I just want you to know that any command in the New Testament to rebuke or to admonish or to correct another person is used as a way for iron to sharpen iron. God is using that as a way that is good for you, to sanctify you, to bring about Christ-likeness in you, to chip away the you-ness of you and replace that with the Christ-likeness that should be in you. Hebrews 12:11 says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant." Nobody likes church discipline when they are on the receptive end of it. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Nobody enjoys discipline in the moment. It's always painful. But that compassionate confrontation is designed to produce good fruit. That's why we do church discipline. Number eight. We do church discipline 
because it can serve to save a self-deceived person. Sometimes people do not accept the idea of church discipline because they believe it is unloving. The most unloving thing that you can do is just let a person continue to walk away from God and say nothing. Notice that the final step of church discipline is an act of love. Handing someone over to Satan is not the most evil thing that you can say or do. It certainly is not. What that means is that you are telling the individual when you hand them over to Satan, you are telling them your actions reveal that you are probably not a Christian. We do not consider you a Christian. We do not think that you are a believer unless we see repentance in this area of your life because you are not walking as a Christian is called to walk. Is that evil? Absolutely not. Look at verse 5 again. Why do we do this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why do we hand someone over to Satan? Not so that they will go to hell, but so that they won't. So that if they are self-deceived, they will hear the convicting voice of the Spirit and repent. The goal, even the final step of excommunication, is to help an unrepentant person to see their desperate need of God's grace so that they might turn and repent and find mercy in the only place that any of us can find it, in Jesus Christ himself. If there is a person who has been self-deceived, who thinks they are walking with God when they are walking as an enemy of God, the worst thing that you can do is applaud them as they march their way to hell. The best thing that we can do is walk through the process of church discipline so that they might come to know and follow Jesus Christ as we are called to. And if he is an unsaved individual, that he might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that we learned today. We're going to see how this practically plays out. If you have any questions about this, please know I'm always available to uh, hear them and our elders are ready to answer questions regarding this. But specifically, if you want to know about how it works, come back next Sunday. We'll learn how this practically is implemented here at our church. So consider this an extended introduction. Next week, we'll see more. Let's go ahead and close our time now in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are worthy. I thank you that Jesus Christ has every right to have his name glorified and lifted high. And Lord, we acknowledge that there are times when our actions, our words, and our display among the community is not proper. And Lord, I pray that we would live as lights in the world, that we would be straight in the uh, times of a crooked and wicked generation as we read about in Philippians 2. Lord, I just pray that we would be people of God that live like people of God that we would operate within the boundaries that you have set forward for us in the scripture and that we would see those boundaries as good and protective. And Lord, if there is anyone who struggles with the idea of church discipline or with the implementation of it, Lord, I just ask that you would please cause them to study the scriptures and to see that your heart for us is good in this process of discipline. And Lord, I pray that as we begin practicing this more and more faithfully at our church, that you would help us to do so in love and compassion and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.